This is an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. If United States senators were looking for reassurance the country is ready to reopen from its coronavirus lockdown, they were warned against it by the nation's top virus authority. The consequences could be uh, uh, really uh, serious. Dr. Anthony Fauci testified during a partially virtual hearing that opening now will almost surely create new infections and new deaths. There is no doubt, even under the best of circumstances, when you pull back on mitigation, you will see some cases appear. No state currently easing restrictions has met the White House guideline to first see a decline in cases for 14 days in a row. Not only won't the virus just go away, Fauci said it has already killed more than the 81,000 Americans it is already said to have claimed. The number is likely higher. I, I don't know exactly what percent right. higher. But almost certainly it's higher. It was a blunt reality check about the challenges the country still faces in confronting the pandemic. Fauci said it's a bridge too far to think there will be a vaccine before school starts in the fall. Even at the top speed we're going, we don't see a vaccine playing in the ability of individuals to get back to school this term. Fauci said it would likely be late fall or early winter before they know if clinical trials of eight different vaccine candidates are successful. And so there is also a focus on treatments. Today, doctors at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center in Buffalo said they were starting to test in coronavirus patients a two-drug combo used for treating some cancers. Dr. Bram Siegel is with us. How might a cancer therapy help treat COVID-19? Some of the pathways that are relevant for, let's say, antiviral uh, defense can also be exploited to augment uh, anti-tumor immunity. We took, in essence, the reverse course for COVID-19 and said, well, let's, uh, let's now look at these same uh, pathways and see if we can augment them therapeutically so that they defend against uh, viral infection. Are there naturally similarities between coronavirus and cancer that made this obvious for you to try? No, actually, uh, the virus and the tumor cells are are completely different. The the part that's similar, in essence, is our immune responses to to tumor and virus that could be exploited therapeutically. Could you say a, a little bit more about how these two drugs act and what your hope is they'll do inside the body of a coronavirus patient? So our uh, innate immune system is able to recognize viruses And one of the main things it will do is drive interferon. Recombinant interferon is a drug, and it's one of the drugs we're using in our regimen, but our body naturally makes uh, interferon to defend against uh, viruses and and other infections. It will stimulate uh, in our cells a specific enzyme called RNases. So RNases, what they do is they degrade RNA. And uh, when, when, when you think of uh, coronavirus and other viruses are, in fact, RNA viruses, the second agent called rintotolamod. Rintotolamod is double-stranded RNA, and it's, a, it's designed to be a viral mimic. So when it's introduced into a cell, it will be recognized by certain uh, receptors, 
that will also uh, result in interferon alpha, endogenous interferon alpha production, and other downstream pathways that protect from viral infection. So it's tricking the body into to making its own defense. Oh, yes. Yes, that's in essence the premise of it. So at, at this point, we're limiting enrollment to patients with cancer because they have higher risk of, of more severe COVID infection. And we're also limiting enrollment to people with mild or moderate COVID-19 disease, but not severe, because we want to use this window of opportunity to augment uh, their innate uh, host defense so that at an early stage of COVID, they may be able to you know, defend against virus and prevent the replication cycle of the virus you know, as it goes from one cell to another to another. Uh, if we're arming these cells ahead of time, they might uh, defend against viral spread. Dr. Bram Siegel at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center in Buffalo, which is now undertaking what is one of the very few studies in the world to repurpose an experimental cancer therapy as a treatment for coronavirus. The bagpipes played today at Holy Name Medical Center in Teaneck, New Jersey, for Union City Police Officer Octavio Robles. With a thumbs up for a crowd that gathered to applaud, he left the hospital where he had been on a ventilator since April 21st. His chief, Nikki Luster, was there waiting. It's a great day for us today. We are uh, excited, relieved, and incredibly grateful. Can you talk a little bit about the circumstances that went down with this officer? Sure. So uh, Officer Robles is one of our patrol officers. He works the midnight shift. You know, he became ill. We sent him for testing. He came back positive, and his condition quickly deteriorated. He was transported to the hospital, and shortly after arrival was intubated. Uh, fortunately, the family, the staff um, at the hospital, everybody was in constant communication, which kind of made a difficult situation that much easier. Um, a few days ago, he was taken off of the ventilator, extubated. Um, we learned that he was able to walk, um, able to communicate, able to tell his children that uh, he loved them. And just, um, we really think it's a miracle. We're so grateful to the staff at the hospital and everybody that was involved in his care. So, uh, it, again, we suffered a loss in my department. We, we had an officer that passed away on April 16th, and then... With Octavio becoming ill, we were um, incredibly concerned and just so grateful to be here today and to be able to see him and uh, get him back to his family and ultimately hopefully back to work. What does it mean to, to have him back, not only for the manpower in the department, but also for the morale boost? Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. We, again, we're still grieving the loss of Detective Alex Ruperto, um, our officer that passed away on April 16th. To have a day today, and I, I describe it as a, uh, a spot of light or a ray of light, just means everything to the men and women in my department, to myself, to our city residents. Just to have some positivity back, um, it's, the impact is immeasurable. We are, again, I just can't express my level of gratitude. A lot of that gratitude goes to Officer Robles' doctor, Luke Ironman. You started seeing him after his mom died, perhaps, of covid this really was some case. Correct. 
And he, he's definitely a miracle, no question on it. The staff at Holy Name Medical Center, the nursing staff, the critical care team, the infectious disease team, they've been phenomenal here. Can you talk a little bit about what it took to care for, for him? Absolutely. Um, so basically, we started monitoring him after his mom passed away. Um, he came into the hospital after experiencing some shortness of breath. Uh, that morning, we saw him, and he was feeling pretty good, almost to the point where he wanted to go home. We asked him to stay for an additional 24 hours. Uh, later that evening, he started to cough, and just started coughing up massive amounts of blood, and uh, he had to be intubated at that point. Uh, he was on the ventilator for approximately two weeks and a few days, and we took him off about a week ago. Were you expecting that he would come off, or what was your thinking throughout the course of the treatment? Uh, we were always praying that he would be coming off. It w there were many days that we had questions about how he was improving, uh, but ultimately we did feel he was going to make a good improvement. He did respond very well to the medications. Uh, the critical care team and the infectious disease doctors, uh, they did everything they possibly could, and he responded very well to the treatment. You know, I'm blessed with taking care of most of our first responders in our immediate area. Um, you know, it was definitely uh, of importance to make sure he recovered and got back out there to help other people. Dr. Luke Ironman at Holy Name Medical Center in Teaneck, New Jersey. He, too, was there in the crowd to watch Officer Octavio Robles go home. <laughs> Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jennifer Ashton is coming up. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special. You're listening to an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News Correspondent Amy Robach. And with me, as always, is ABC Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And we know Clorox wipes have been sold yeah. out. They're on back order. You cannot get your hands on right. them. And obviously, we're all doing so much to try and prevent the spread of COVID-19. I know you've done a deep dive on disinfectants. So tell us what we need to know. And this is interesting, Amy. It's the chemistry behind this disinfection craze. So first of all, there have been few studies done in a lab setting using SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus. So a lot of this knowledge is based on extrapolated data from other similar viruses. But the EPA has a list. It's publicly accessible. People can look it up. It's called List N, where all of the disinfectants that are active against coronavirus are listed. They all work similarly. Similarly, they disrupt this outer fatty lipid membrane of the virus and therefore kill it. Soap and water does work very well also. Mm -hmm. So if you can't get your hands on the Clorox wipe, remember, soap and water, even for cleaning your home environment, works just fine. All right. That's good to know. And I think most of us would think disinfecting is a straightforward process, but you're shaking your head. No, you that isn't not. true. And so I, I kind of geeked out on the science behind this because there are a lot of variables and factors that can affect how 
effective disinfecting and cleaning is in terms of killing this virus. One of them is what type of surface are you cleaning? Hard surfaces different than soft surfaces like fabrics, rugs, carpets, clothing. Contact or wait time is critical. Most of these ingredients need several minutes, even up to 10 minutes to actually kill the virus alone. Mm -hmm. Whereas I was just wiping and assuming everything was dead. And really the key ingredients here from the chemistry standpoint, alcohol-based disinfectants, oxidizers, or ammonium salts. Those, if you look at the labels, those are the ingredients you want to look for. They're all effective. All right. And usually this is the point in our conversation where I ask you what we still don't know. But we're going to do a little differently right. today. You're going to have a list of products for us that we can look for. Right. And it's, I think this is important because remember, we've been hearing about Clorox. That's not the only cleaning supply that people can use. So on the EPA list, Windex, Fantastic, Comet, Lysol products, all effective. Anything with hydrogen peroxide or just hydrogen peroxide and isopropyl alcohol, which is rubbing alcohol. And if you want a DIY version, it's a third a cup of bleach mixed with a gallon of water. There are also really important safety tips here, Amy, that that people need to know. Read these labels. Read them again and again. Make sure you have an adequate ventilated area because, again, the, the fumes can be toxic. Always wear gloves and don't mix. This isn't a recipe right. for a lasagna. You don't want to mix different chemicals. That can be really, really dangerous. All right. Very important tips there. Dr. Jen Ashton, you you'll be back in just a moment. Mm-hmm. But now let's go to Washington, where ABC's Kira Phillips is standing by with all of the latest headlines for us. Hey, Amy, we begin actually at the White House where they're keeping their distance. A senior administration official saying that President Trump and Vice President Pence are staying away from each other for now due to coronavirus concerns. And that decision was made after consulting with the White House medical team. Officials in Wuhan, China, now launching what they call a 10-day battle to come up with ways to test all 11 million residents for signs of the coronavirus. This follows a new cluster of cases emerging over this past weekend. Meanwhile, in California, we're hearing beaches in Los Angeles will be reopening tomorrow. The County Department of Beaches and Harbors says you can take yourself and your family there for exercise and to get some fresh air, but you can't sit on the sand yet or bring coolers. Kara, thank you. you We're going to move on now to the battle raging here at home between saving lives and restoring livelihoods. As many states begin to lift their lockdowns, Colorado is in the thick of reopening amidst concerts about some establishments not respecting distancing rules. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock joining us now with the challenges he is facing. Mayor, thanks for being with us. And I guess just give us a, a feeling of how it's going right there in Denver. You know what? We think it's going pretty well, actually. You know, uh, outside of a, uh, a few isolated incidents where some businesses have decided to willfully defy the governor's order, for the most part, businesses here in Colorado, in Denver, are complying with the orders and uh, helping all of us to get through uh, this epic curve right now. Yeah, you referenced uh, rogue businesses. Specifically, there was a restaurant in Castle Rock, which is about 30 minutes from Denver, that opened up illegally to very large crowds on Mother's Day weekend. First of all, what's your response to that? And have you seen anything like that happening in Denver proper? My wife and I were watching the news and we were just as stunned as everyone in Colorado at the actions of that uh, business owner in Castle Rock. You know, very disappointing. But I got to tell you, I believe the governor made the right decision. And that was to uh, to be very um, clear that uh, you do not willfully defy the orders of the state. Uh, in order to keep people safe. And uh, he suspended the, the business license of that operation, and that was the right move. And I talked last night about it. And because we are making these decisions 
all uh, under the, the priority of keeping people safe and healthy in the state of Colorado. We cannot play games with it. This is not a game for us. Uh, we recognize the need to, for people to have a livelihood, but we need you to be here to have a livelihood. And that's the reason why these orders are put in place, uh, not for any particular game other than to keep people safe. And, and uh, I think the governor responded appropriately. And, and most businesses in Colorado, in Denver, Colorado, are doing exactly that, even though their livelihoods may be at stake. They recognize why we have to take these important steps. Yeah, and, and speaking to that, we heard from Dr. Anthony Fauci, who warned of needless suffering and death if the country opens up too quickly. So how will you and the governor decide if you need to pull back and shut down again? Is that on the table? Yeah, always on the table. Listen, here's a couple of things we got to remember. This virus is still here. This virus will be here for a while which means that as we begin to open up our economy economy and our businesses, we have to operate with caution. And, and that's why we have certain orders in place, such as mask wearing while in public and interacting uh, in public spaces. That's why we really strongly encourage folks, folks to wash hands, that they're sanitizing, uh, sanitizing uh, stations set up for individuals. The reality with that, with the virus with us at all times, we must take the steps to be very careful and be smart about how we protect ourselves and protect one another. And so, yeah, we, we can do these things, but we got to remember that this virus is not going away. It is still with us and it can still have the ability uh, to hurt us. And that's why we will lead with the advice of public health administrators who are constantly measuring and watching and monitoring the uh, metrics that uh, in terms of hospitalizations, infections and deaths, and will continue to give us advice on how best to manage the situation going forward. Denver Mayor Michael Hancock, thank you for your leadership and thank you for being with us today. We appreciate it. I'm gonna stand by you. It is International Nurses Day and the birthday of Florence Nightingale. No better time to meet nurse Jenna Brogdon and hear about her decision to step up her service. My name is Jenna Brogdon. I'm a registered nurse. I've been a nurse for over 10 years and spent over seven of those years in the emergency department. Nursing is an amazing profession. You get to be there at the beginning of life, you get to be there at the end of life and everything in between. I knew from a young age that I wanted to be a nurse. By the age of 23, I was blessed to be in a level one trauma center, working as an ER trauma nurse. When I became a mom, the stress of the ER, you know, started being a lot. And I started feeling burned out and had a big desire to spend more time at home. I transitioned out of the hospital and I took a job in an outpatient surgery center. In Arizona, when the pandemic started hitting, our governor started giving his executive orders. And one of those executive orders included shutting down elective surgeries for a period of time. When the cases started rising in Arizona, I had a tug to return to the emergency room. I have the training, I have the ability, and I have the desire to help those patients. So I recently accepted a job with Banner Health, and I'm now going to be a registered nurse. I'm excited to get back in the ER. I missed it. It's a fast-paced environment. You never know what's coming through the doors. So if I can be there to give a little joy or comfort to these patients, that's what nursing's about. That's why I went into nursing, was to be there for these patients. So I felt like it was a blessing all around for all of us that I could step back into the hospital. I'm hopeful that I can bring some happy energy back to some of these nurses that might be starting to get burned out because they've been working really hard for the past few months. And I can only imagine how hard it's been for them. I pray that we never see anything like this again, because this is awful. But to see everyone build each other up, work together, come together, to me, that's the most amazing thing. 
if there's nurses out there that are wanting to get back into the hospital, I would strongly encourage you to do it. This is the time, and there's so many opportunities on so many different levels, and if you're able and willing and wanting to, then I say go for it. A huge thank you to Jenna and, of course, to all the nurses in our lives for your hard work and your service. Up next right here, Dr. Jen Ashton takes your questions about COVID-19 and then a look inside a horrifying new trend, hateful Zoom bombers. We're back in a moment. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Welcome back to What You Need to Know and a Sign of the Times. The entertainment announcement exciting so many people stuck at home, including me. Disney Plus will debut the film version of Lin-Manuel Miranda's epic musical, Hamilton. It happens on July 3rd, just in time for the 4th of July holiday weekend, featuring the original Broadway cast. Disney, of course, the parent company of ABC News. Well, it's time now for your coronavirus questions. And Dr. Jen Ashton is joining us again with all of the answers that you seek. With honesty each and every time. Hopefully. The, the first question, if you are trained in CPR, is it safe to perform during the COVID-19 pandemic? What a good question. It's an excellent question, Amy. And we have to distinguish between in-hospital CPR, which is a full cardiac resuscitation, and out-of-hospital bystander CPR. First of all, many people do not know the American Heart Association long ago changed its CPR out-of-hospital protocols to be hands-only. You do not need to breathe or ventilate, do mouth-to-mouth anymore. That's really for in-hospital settings, and we're oxygenating people. We're not doing mouth-to-mouth. So that should be taken out of the equation. And again, when you talk about risk versus benefit, out-of-hospital bystander CPR saves lives. So the small risk of possibly being exposed to coronavirus when most cases are mild versus the benefit of saving someone's life. It makes a lot of sense. Yes, Yes. you go to help. All right. Next question. As a parent, should I feel safe about my child going to day camp and or sleepaway camp this summer? That's something a lot of parents are asking. Absolutely. And it's still evolving. We've heard from camp directors nationwide and locally. They're still evaluating the data. Obviously, safety of their campers and their staff is the top priority. Um, You know, it's a closely, densely populated environment where there's prolonged close contact. Um, And interestingly, and I want to quote this to you, Amy, a recent study just out of JAMA Pediatrics, the authors in looking at severe cases of COVID-19 in the pediatric age group, so these are ICU admissions, say children with severe illness, it is significant, but far less frequent than the adult population. Mm. So it doesn't mean it never happens, but again, in general, less frequent. All right. Next question. Do medical professionals think if Americans were healthier as a nation, for example, obesity and heart disease rates, that the virus would not have been as deadly? That is an interesting question. It's interesting. The short answer is yes, because we know that the comorbid or pre-existing conditions like obesity, which then can lead to type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure, absolutely are associated with increased risk of severe COVID-19. That is not to say that it blames the people who have been made sick because it's their fault. This is something where we can target behavior and pre-existing medical conditions to try to improve people's health. And it's also important to realize that there have been fatalities in people who have none of these conditions. So it's part of the picture. It's not the whole picture. All right. Next question. 
as many states reopen, what events or activities are the most high risk in terms of becoming infected with COVID-19? This is fascinating, Amy. There's starting to be more data, and a lot of it is theoretical. A lot of it is pieced together with existing case reports about what environments are riskier versus safer we think, with COVID-19. So again, they're looking back, they're piecing this together. When they look at the biggest super spreading events, what populations or environments are highest risk? Prisons, nursing homes, meatpacking, obviously in this country, those are the biggest. And then we go to social events like weddings, funerals, birthday parties. That represents 10% of super spreading events. Face-to-face business contact, also high. The good news is that outdoor environments represent about 0.2%. 3% of oh, wow. documented super spreading. So the farther away you are, the more ventilated the area, it appears um, the lower the risk for, for a lot of people to get sick. All right. All good things to know. Dr. Jen Ashton, we appreciate it. You Thank bet. you. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J Ashton. Well, now to a bizarre symptom of this pandemic, the rise in cowardly and vicious online attacks by anonymous so-called Zoom bombers. We turn now to Oklahoma City University senior Jay Williams, who is speaking at his virtual graduation ceremony when it was interrupted by a racist and anti-Semitic hack. And by the way, congratulations. I know you graduated with the degree in religion and you were giving the closing prayer of all things, when the Zoom bombing took place. Tell me what was going through your mind as you saw it happening. Yeah, I was completely and utterly just shocked. I, After my university officials uh, closed out the window, it was still spotlighted on me, so everyone could see my jaw drop, and uh, I began to just bawl um, un- uncontrollably. And it wasn't so much about the racist attacks that we saw. We um, see those things in our communities uh, all the time. But it was just like one other thing that just yeah. ruined our graduation. And it's like we never got the graduation that we deserved. Your reaction makes so much sense. But I love what you did with that feeling. After that attack took place, you did something positive. You helped launch a Signs of Love gathering. So tell us about that, what you did. Yeah, so actually um, uh, uh, a former pastor of mine and my current pastor, um, they got together and uh made this gathering uh, signs of love. So we posted all kinds of signs um, on the campus, right on our busy high, on our busy street. Um, and as cars drove by, they saw these anti-racist signs, these signs of love, um, the signs of welcome and inclusion, all these things that my campus stands for um, to kind of combat the hate that happened just 24 hours before uh, the signs event. So it was a great event. And a lot of people from the community showed up um, and gave support to the class of 2020 and OCU campus. Yeah, I know, Jay, you didn't get the graduation you earned or that you deserved, and you had to suffer through that hateful response. But you know what? You're here now on a national platform, and so I want to give you the opportunity to give those words of love and hope that you'd like to share with us on behalf of your classmates and your university. So take it away. Absolutely. And I appreciate it so much. Yeah. So the last thing that the people saw in the graduation meeting right after those um, attacks happened was the sign, this coexist sign um, with rainbow letters, um, all faiths represented, um, showing that love is more powerful. It demonstrates that love gets the final word every single time. Um, And I just want to say a special shout out to my classmates, the class of 2020 at Oklahoma City University. We've endured so much. We've overcome so many obstacles in our lives, and this is just another one of them. I've been to school with my peers 
for four plus years. Um, and uh, these people are really going to make a difference. They're going to go out and make the world a better place. And I just so believe it. Um, so I want to shout out them and want to remind them to keep fighting in love. Um, we will make the world a better place uh, as it should be. We know you will, especially with you leading the way. Jay Williams, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations to you you and all of your classmates on your graduation. We can't wait to see what you'll do next. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. Now to a story that is unfortunately becoming more common now than ever before. Alyssa Hogan is a widowed single mother of three, suddenly unemployed in the pandemic, pushed to the edge of hunger in one of the country's wealthiest states. But as ABC's Diane Macedo shows us, determined to persevere. After losing her husband three years ago, the widowed mother was taking things day by day. Three years ago, I actually lost my husband, and it was an unexpected death. I am, you know, the sole supporter and the one who pays all the bills, the one who feeds all the kids. Then suddenly, the COVID pandemic hit. You know, there was nothing that I could do to prepare for something like this. I've been able to make it on my own until all of this happened, which has put us in a really huge financial struggle. There was no savings put aside, especially being a waitress. For me, it's like, how am I going to support my kids? At first, she was hesitant to ask for help. It's something I've never even thought about doing, and I never thought I would have to. You know, I've always worked But widowed with a family to feed and no stable income, Alyssa decided she had no choice. I really just needed to get humble. I've never needed to ask for this type of help before. So, you know, for me it was like a little embarrassing, but I wanted to put myself out there because I know that this is something that my family needs, and it's not about me. Alyssa now says she's been able to get some much-needed relief. I reached out to get help with food stamps. That's uh, Monmouth County Food Bank. They've helped um, a lot. You know, I'm so grateful for all the food that we receive. Now she's using her story as an example for others, letting them know that it's okay to ask for help. I'm putting my name out there, putting my story out there, and I'm getting the help that I need. You know, we really just, we have each other. That's all we have. And that's really just how we get, we stay as strong as we can as a family. Our thanks to Diane Macedo for that. Alyssa Hogan joins us now, along with the president and CEO of Fulfill Food Bank, Kim Guadano. Kim is also New Jersey's former lieutenant governor, so we want to welcome you both for being with us. And Alyssa, I have to say, wow, your vulnerability and your bravery are inspirational. One tragedy after another, I can't even imagine. Tell me how things are going for you and your family now. Um, You know, like I said, we take it day by day. Right now, we're doing okay. We're um, doing the best I can. I have to really be strong for my kids. And, you know, I try not to let them see all the struggles that we're going through. I know that you mentioned that you initially were hesitant, and that's so understandable. But you reached out for help through Fulfill Food Bank last week. This was the first time you'd ever done that. Tell me what that experience was like for you. 
it was actually, you know, something that, like I said, I thought I would never do, but it was something that was really easy. It was very discreet. All I had to do was drive up and literally just walk out. They don't ask for your name or anything of the sort. And you just get a box and you put it right in your car and drive away. It was something so easy that anyone could do. There's no embarrassment. It's, you know, super easy. I really suggest it. Wow. And then, Kim, I want to bring you into this because you are seeing families just like Alyssa's who have never been at your food bank before. Tell us what you were seeing day in and day out. You know, at the Jersey Shore, we've seen a 40 percent increase in volume. And what do I mean by that? The number of people coming here to the food bank at a fulfill. Um, and there are people of all ages. There are people of all backgrounds. The Jersey Shore survives on restaurant and hospitality. So we saw probably a layoff of close to uh, every bartender, every server, every owner at the Jersey co- co- Coast over the last couple of weeks. And, uh, and we've seen an increase in volume as a result. And so we tr- did try to make it as stigma-free as possible. I can't tell you how many people we tried to get to do this who were too embarrassed to say they were going to a food bank and getting help. Kim, for people who have resources right now and want to help, how can people help their local food banks right now? Out of the 50 states that are listening right now, everybody's going to have a different way of doing it, but fulfillnj.org is the way you can help the people at the Jersey Shore. Fulfillnj.org, and you can volunteer because people want to get out now. We're, We're actually getting more volunteers coming in because we are essential personnel. They can give money, which allows us to buy food. Sometimes we have to wait for that food. Sometimes we have to struggle for that food and pay a premium for it. But it allows us to buy food so that our 40% increase in volume, our 14,000 extra meals a day now in the last 60 days can be satisfied. And then also, of course, we're doing fun drives. We're doing, um, we have about 18 uh, food drives right now. And so they can also deliver food here. Well, we certainly appreciate all that you do, Kim. And uh, of course, Alyssa, we're wishing you both the best. Continued, continued good health. Up next right here when we come back, the man known for a hangover or two is going to join us with his whiskey sour happy hour. But this is all for a very good cause. Actor and comedian Ed Helms is here. This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach. COVID-19 has devastated the music community, but a new virtual variety program is lending a big helping hand with a few laughs, some good tunes, and much-needed support. Give an ocean of diamonds and a world filled with flowers To hold you closely for just a few hours Nice. That is actor and comedian Ed Helms, host of a Whiskey Sour Happy Hour. And we are very excited to have Ed with us today. So thanks for being here. And we know you're inviting your fans to join you for that unique happy hour. Tell us about what they're going to find when they tune in, Ed. Well, thanks for having me. I, You know, for a long time here in Los Angeles, I've done these live shows at a place called Largo that are just really a traditional variety show, lots of comedy, lots of great music. And the music is all in kind of an Americana roots category. And so that's what this is. It just has sort of a modern digital twist. 
Tell us why it was so important to you to do something special for the music community. You know, a lot of people think that musicians are just the famous people that we see in pop culture. And that's actually a very tiny percentage of the of the music business. So many musicians are basically freelance workers out there just trying to make ends meet, whether it's at a wedding band or session recordings or whatever. And they need some help in this this terrible situation. So this incredible organization called Music Cares uh, set up a, a relief fund for people in the music business uh, hit by this crisis. We're also benefiting Direct Relief, which is uh, provides medical supplies to frontline workers. So it's uh, a couple of great causes. Yeah, that's incredible. And I know you're being joined by a couple of great hosts and guests. Who are, you, who are we going to see with you, Ed? Yeah, it's been awesome. We've had a few shows already. We've had people like Ben Harper and Yola and, and my, my buddy Jim Gaffigan. Our next show, we're going to have Roseanne Cash and, oh boy, so many, Mandy Moore and wow. Taylor Goldsmith. My buddy Stephen Colbert is going to stop by. <laughs> so it's good stuff. Yeah, music and laughs together. You can't beat that combination. Ed Helms, thank you so much for what you're doing, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We now have our final thoughts with Dr. Jen Ashton. So, Amy, so much attention right now on testing, more access to testing, antibody testing. Again, to encourage people to think like a doctor, we have a saying in medicine, don't do a test unless you think you will know what you'll do with the results of that test. And right now, at least, the results of antibody testing, while there's so much curiosity, which is completely understandable, the results should not change your behavior one bit. You still should wear a mask when you're outside. You still should keep distance between yourself and others. You should still wash your hands frequently. And so right now, at least, that is the result. That is the answer. It's not going to change your behavior. So while the curiosity is there... And the way to think like a doctor may not be that important to go for that test just yet. That is very interesting to hear. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dr. Jen. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. ABC News. Honored. Winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News. America's number one news choice. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.